welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Our next meeting will be May 4th when we'll have a debate on uh, internet privacy and security with David Rifkin and Nadine Strassen. Uh, I hope you will all be able to join us for that. Today we are uh, thrilled to have with us Alan DeBerry, a serial entrepreneur and we will talk about why software companies thrive here in the United States more than in other parts of the world. Uh, for those of you who don't know Alan, I'm going to read probably a tiny fraction of his bio. His accomplishments are legion. Um, he describes himself as a serial entrepreneur and active community leader. The two software companies he founded are valued at well over a billion dollars each and employ over 2,000 people each. He has uh, more than 20 years of experience in building successful software companies and holds more than 25 patents or patent applications on supply chain, logistics, and enterprise mobility software. He is the founder and was the chairman of AirWatch, the largest enterprise mobility management company. Uh, and under his direction, AirWatch rapidly grew from 150 to 1,700 employees in three years. Um, in, in 2013, he played an instrumental role in securing the largest known Series A funding round of any technology company at $200 million. Nearly a year later, navigate the company's acquisition of VMware, the global leader in virtualization and cloud infrastructure for $1.54 billion. He previously founded Manhattan Associates, the world's largest supply chain execution software company, and he served as the president and CEO from 1990 through 2000. He's an active community leader. He serves on the board of directors of, for the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, the cha chairman of the foundation board and as a trustee for Innova Health Systems, the board of trustees for the Potomac School here in McLean, Virginia, and the president's advisory board of the Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, I could go on and on, uh, but in the interest of time. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear that guy talk. Who was that? <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> um, Start by telling me how we met and, and kind of why we started talking about U.S. software and how that all got started. You know, and I, I don't know how we actually started on the software. Um, I think I had mentioned what I did, and as I recollect you, we started getting engaged in that conversation. And, and you said, oh, well, I've written a book uh, on, on U.S. software companies and competitiveness, and you gave me some of the ideas that you had on on why it was that the U.S. so much dominated. And I said, you know, uh, those are all right, but I, I think I've got a little different view in terms of priority of it. And I started to spiel you with my uh, two minutes of what I thought, and you were like, hmm. And I guess you had written your book a few years earlier. when uh, 25 years ago, yeah. Yeah, so maybe things have changed a little bit. Not that software changes that much. Uh, but uh, so we kind of got into that, and, and I, I must have struck you as somebody who could at least put together I a full sentence. Said, uh, let's let's get you at Hudson. Yeah. So, and uh, and so that's how we how how we met, and how this has all come about. So why is the U.S. so good at software? What is it special about the United States? So 
in my opinion, it real, really boils down to scale. Um, and, and the fact that we have a lack of friction in getting business done in this country. And first of all, what a lot of people don't know about software, we were talking earlier today, it's a fashion product. There is nobody who goes out and buys software and the first thing they do is say, give me the 100 lines of code. I want to see how good it is. It's how well do you present it? How well do you present the need? How quickly do you uh, convey to somebody that there's value? And then you get to the next step. And I don't think there's anywhere like the US where what I'm going to call the whole package comes together for the creation of the company. And this is creative people that think like that, that, are, uh, you know, that have even been in companies. Uh, that have gone through this process. The fact that we're, we are a fairly creative culture, we're a meritocracy. Uh, people who are smart and creative and articulate uh, can actually succeed in a way that I think very few countries have that sort of rungless ladder of, of ability. This is where a lot of the trade shows are. And I mentioned to you earlier, you know, every idea I've ever had came from a trade show. Uh, and I kiddingly say about my companies, I know a great joke when I steal it. You know, I get in, and, I, and where other than a trade show do you sit and talk to 100 people in a day or two, and you get this petri dish of ideas, and you're in front of customers, and in software more than any other industry, proximity to the customer to get those ideas is important. We kind of talked about why it continues to stay here. But once you get those early customers, the, the key again to the US is that this is where companies buy software with relatively little friction. So suddenly, I get out and I get my first handful of customers. And unlike any other industry in the world, software has a zero cost of goods sold. So if I'm in the shipbuilding business and I sell a $100 million ship, uh, I may make $5 million, I may lose $5 million. But when I sell $100 million worth of software, it drops to the bottom line. Or, or I should even say, more importantly, an incremental $100 million to my competitor. And that money goes into sales, and it goes into marketing, and it goes into better engineering, and it goes into better employees. And it generally, it then starts to start a virtuous cycle. Because if I'm selling two or three or four times more software than my competitor, very quickly I just outscale them. Secondly, customers then become more familiar with my brand and my sales process is easier. Suddenly there are more employees that know my software who my customer can employ to go deploy my software and run it. And this virtuous cycle fits into where, like no other industry in the world, software kind of wants to be a monopoly. It wants to boil down to a single big player that everybody knows that's the best product uh, until there's an innovative disruption. And that company becomes too settled. It decides that it uh, has to protect its markets. And then something kind of comes to the bottom and shocks them. And there's no place like the United States that has single language. We're all comfortable working with each other. You can get on a plane and get to places quickly. Uh, and you can get to that kind of scale anywhere like the United States. And then, then you throw all the other stuff into it. Of, in so many countries, the ability to hire and fire quickly, the abilities of, of putting together contracts. If I'm a French software company trying to do business in Germany or England or Italy, I've just got a lot of cultural biases in many ways. So generally, as, as we have scaled our company, very often we hit what I'm going to call the, the pet local player. Um, and, and we have a real tough time early in the cycle getting over the fact that we're the better company. Uh, and then as we start getting more infrastructure and more comfortable in those countries, again, because we're on a global scale, 10, 20 times bigger sometimes in those companies, the product just overwhelms those local companies that had a great niche win when it wasn't as complicated a space.
So those are some of the aspects. So you're emphasizing scale, which, which makes a lot of sense. So the companies develop in the United States because we have this uh, great unified market that's very large. And then we're able to also sell the software in other countries because uh, we, we just have a better software product for that. Is that right? It is. And, you, you know, and I'll go through sort of the cycle with my first company, Manhattan Associates, started in 1990. Um, the expression in sales is you kill where you hunt. Uh, and, and so you had the chance to, to kind of limit your market the way you want. And we were, I was very reluctant to go international. Uh, and it wasn't until many years when we had enough big customers, and even in distribution sometimes, they'd run one package in the U.S. and a different local package in another country. And finally they said, you know, we want to homogenize all of this. And so we started getting dragged into these other countries, and we'd have to put in infrastructure and support teams. And, oh, God, then we'd have to, you know, no employee in Italy wants to work unless you have an Italian entity. Uh, and then all of a sudden you don't have employees, you have dependents uh, for life. Uh, and one bad hire and the, the process of... Uh, and so you know, I really avoided it until we kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into doing all this international work. So fast forward to AirWatch uh, in 2006 uh, and 2008, and the problem is suddenly you've got a website. And let me tell you, people read those websites, and you, know, you get 15 emails from Lithuania saying, I need exactly what you're doing. Will you come here? Or you know, something from France and a company like Sanofi. And you're like, ah, am I going to say no to Sanofi? Uh, so suddenly, uh, I didn't have the same choice. But my expression uh, in the first company was always that if you, if you win the world and you uh, lose the United States, you've really lost the world. If you win the United States and you lose the world, you've really won the world. Eventually, you're going to get there. And, uh, but you've got to be careful not to get distracted internationally too early. Uh, and we uh, were able to have the disciplines of that in my first company. And honestly, we didn't have a choice to not do that in the second company. Because once you are up for sale in the world and the Internet is where people are finding your products, and you become a global company today much faster, whether you want to or not. If you think about the, the largest software companies in the world, it, it really is astounding how many of them are American companies. They're a handful of exceptions. Uh, we were discussing SAP earlier, and you were describing how SAP may have been originally German, but they decided they have to establish themselves in the U.S. to succeed. Um, and this seems to be true across most, most areas of software. So. And especially in enterprise. We had sort of talked about in gaming and, and some consumer products. You think of WhatsApp. Uh, you know, and by the way, that you get WhatsApp and an American company buys them. So even, even if you get a fighting chance of being a good uh, international software company, if you do any good, U.S. companies, uh, unless you're in China, U.S. companies are going to come in and probably snap you up, I guess. Uh, but I do think that part of SAP's success was that recognition that they couldn't be a European software company, that if you do not get into the U.S. and win these U.S. companies, and what I have found is even a lot of the multinational companies, many of our selection processes were actually done in the U.S. So those countries will actually identify that probably they're, you know, it didn't mean that they didn't have a European team, but that the best skills for the software selection process, the least friction, and what will result in the most rational choice, because we have such a harder drive of being a meritocracy and doing what's right, 
in this country as opposed to doing what's friendly, doing what's biased to my own country, doing what's, uh, uh, e even if it's political or friendly at very senior levels. What, what is the right decision for lots of other reasons other than what is purely the best software product that's gonna run my company? I think most international companies, um, I'm guessing here, I mean, I don't run international companies, but so many of our selection processes were really driven out of the United States, even for the international companies. started extraordinarily successful company in, not in Silicon Valley, but in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, a lot of people think of Silicon Valley when they think of the software industry. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's possible to have a successful one outside. Tell us a bit about your decision about developing, building the company in Atlanta as opposed to somewhere else. So, so I have to almost back up to answer that question. And, and Silicon Valley is the mecca. And there are the right products that need to be built in Silicon Valley. And I don't build those kinds of companies. So if you think of VMware, this great company, but you know, five of the smartest guys in the world went and developed something that couldn't be redeveloped for another 10 years. Uh, and they built this multi-billion dollar company out of it. But it is truly the kind of stuff that a very small number of the top 1% of the top 1% will get together, and they're just the smartest guys in the world at doing some things. Uh, Atlanta doesn't have that type of talent. So I started my company in California, uh, in, but in Los Angeles, so not the Silicon Valley, and we needed to move. Um, and, and we were doing most of our business on the East Coast, and I was taking a red eye to the East Coast almost every week. I think I exploded on a plane and said, I'm gonna get the heck out of California because being on the West Coast time zone and getting to the East was just brutal. And the software that we had was, I'm gonna call it a little bit of software because it ran a warehouse, but we had an awful lot of engineering that went with it. So we had to get people on site and a lot of our business was on the East Coast. So we ultimately said to really scale and with 30 people we moved to Atlanta and three years later we were close to 1,000 people. Uh, I could not have found those kind of people that number of people in the Silicon Valley. And I didn't need five developers that were gonna come up with the next cyber algorithm or virtualization algorithm. In this business, you needed to go in one by one to a warehouse that was unique, it needed a bunch of developers. It wasn't necessarily the most nuanced code of I need to do it in three lines and, and outsmart the rest of the world. It was a lot of brute force. And Atlanta was ideal for that. So enterprise software it doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of really smart people in Atlanta, so I don't want to give the wrong impression, but, but we had great people where I could scale it and build um, for thousands of customers really custom, unique things that ended up in a, in a really cohesive product, uh, but I, I was never going to build that company with a small development team. It needed a really bigger development team. So what I've seen is, is so many of the chambers of commerce, they get up and they say, well, why can't we be Silicon Valley? And it's, um, you know, how do you out Harvard, Harvard, uh, I said. How do you out Walmart, Walmart? Uh, and so many of them say, well, wait, we want to be Silicon Valley, uh, but we know we don't have all the attributes of Silicon Valley, so we are going to uh, try to do it our own way. We're going to be Silicon South or we're going to be uh, 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 Silicon Alley or whatever it is. And then you, then you look at the way they're going to get there and it's, Everything is the how-to become Silicon Valley. So they say we don't want to be Silicon Valley, but they're so enamored, they put together a plan that really follows to be Silicon Valley instead of their own unique characteristics. Uh, and, and so they 
they sort of set themselves up for failure, and they don't really understand what are their strengths and their unique strengths. And again, I'll say I'm starting a third company in Atlanta, and I know that I couldn't do what I do necessarily in the Silicon Valley because it's uh, it's a different kind of business. You must get asked by people this all the time, though. How do you set up uh, a successful software business somewhere outside of somewhere outside of Silicon Valley? This, you must be asked this frequently. Well, sure. Um, and it always reminds the answer always reminds me of the Steve Martin joke from Saturday Night Live. I can tell you how to make a million dollars and not pay your taxes. First, make a million dollars. Then don't pay your taxes. That's the easy answer. Um, so the way you build a software company is uh, through tenacity and hard work. And it's kind of always the same answer. And a great mogul skier doesn't sit up at the top of the mountain and say, I know every mogul I'm going to hit and exactly how I go down. They're going to hit the first one and react quickly and hit the second one. And based on that, he's going to react to the third one. And they don't really exactly plan their way down. They, they nuance. You know, they may hit the same mogul, but the second one they're going to hit a little different than they planned because they're reacting to what happened on the first one. I did an article for the New York Times with the corner office. And, uh, and the line that he kind of used to be the theme of the article was that I'd said, uh, but the theme was sort of, you know, in, in software, 90% of life is just showing up. You start out and you, you build something. Um, but that I said that, that every company can be successful. And what I find is that good ideas are hard, but executing on them is even harder. And I don't think there's any area of software that a rational person would go into that does not have disruptive capabilities. You think about retail. It's the oldest business in the world, and every year someone comes up with a successful retailer because they take a new spin on it or a new twist. You know, I got into warehouse management software that, uh, look, there were already plenty of warehouse management software companies, but we disrupted by productizing better. We took the price down. We took a different view of it. We actually didn't go after the macro market. We said, wait a minute, there's a micro market here of the apparel industry, and they've got some unique characteristics. They've got style, color, size. SAP and Oracle won't touch that. Secondly, I got into it, and I recognized that the industry was changing. They were going from, we're going to ship bulk orders to retail warehouses to we're going to ship individual store-packed orders for each store. One of our customers went from six orders a month to 17,000 orders a week, uh, shipping the same volume. Well, you've got to do things differently. The retailers were integrating the industry. So I'd walk into warehouses and I'd see 50 whiteboards that said, if you're shipping to Walmart, you have to put these in certain boxes. You've got to put the label on this location. This is the label format you use and don't do this. Oh, Sears, if you're going to do that, you got to do this. And they had it all manual up on whiteboards. And I said, my God, we can automate that. And then we guarantee, we're going to have a marketing campaign that says we guarantee compliance to the top 100 retailers. And I looked at all my competitors' marketing and it said, we're going to make your warehouse more efficient. We are going to improve your productivity. We are going to improve your inventory accuracy. And I looked at this marketing and I said, you know, the key to marketing is if you put it, the exact opposite statement down and it sounds stupid, you probably don't need to say it. Would you really market? I'm going to decrease your productivity. I'm going to make your people you know, more frustrated and have, make their job more difficult. I am going to lower your profitability and make sure that your inventory accuracy really sucks. If you're going to say the reverse, it's probably not worth saying. 
But if you say, wait a minute, my core difference is not that I run your warehouse, it's that I guarantee your compliance to your customer that is different than what any of my other competitors are saying. I specialize in the retail industry, and if you're a shipper to retail, you've got these problems, and I'm going to solve those problems for you. And so this is where I get back to saying, people forget software is a fashion product. It's the ability to find interesting ways to articulate what you do. And I, uh, you know, I, 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 one of the most smartest things I ever read, it was back in 92, and they, the most successful insurance salesman in California had just died. And it was an article in the obituaries. It said, this is not your typical salesperson. He wasn't tall. He wasn't good looking. He wasn't highly articulate. But he had been in the industry for 50 years and honed his craft. And he was a short, uh, quiet gentleman, most successful doing this. And, and it said over 40 years, he had honed a presentation. And he had a little flipboard. And he had, on one page, he had two pennies taped to the page. And he said, for just a couple of pennies a day. And on the next page, he had a $100 bill taped to it. And he said, I can give you this kind of protection for your family. And, you know, but he really spoke from the heart and touched people. And, he, and what I learned from that is you know, the idea to, to get a presentation that people are interested in that's, that touches them. And this is this. It's a fashion product. And you know, I would walk in to, to sell in the first company, and I wasn't a salesperson. And I was shy, and uh, uh, you know, when I, I, I trembled on the phone on my first cold call. You know, I didn't come out of sales. I came out of engineering. And, uh, but, but, but after a few years of really honing a presentation where I said, look, you know, what's happening in your warehouse is you print this pile of paper, you pass it out to your warehouse folks, you pat them on the back and say, God bless you. If you could ever ship this stuff, uh, tell me about it and key it in. And, but interesting ways of presenting the message in the sales process that we, and it wasn't just that we told them what we were going to solve, but we told them how we were going to solve their problem in an interesting way in the presentation with a certain amount of humor, uh, and, and we became wildly successful. And again, I'll say it's where I learned that it, it's not just the 100 lines of code. To build these companies and to get these first customers, it's about building the personal relationships, it's about uh, being an expert, Probably one of the best books I ever read on how to build a software company was, um, uh, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. Who's the uh, justice that just passed away? Scalia. Scalia's book on presenting to the Supreme Court. Every chapter in that book is a lesson in how do you present software. No, be an expert. Nobody wants you to come in if you don't know more. If you're not going to educate me, I don't want to see you. Concede your weak ground early. Don't, you know, when somebody says you don't do this well, I see every person who gets up tries to present products, try to defend why that's not a weakness. Give up on your weaknesses. Move on to your strengths. And again, these are the skills that get you the first customers. The first customers get you the next customers. The next customers get you scale. Scale gets you more developers. And the rest is easy. There is... It's not entirely sales, though. So some of this is actually having a good product. And you were telling me that one of the advantages the United States has had has been its immigration policy at different points in time. Tell us a bit about that, about how we've gotten some very bright people here in the United States. Well, we, we, there were sort of three points to this. I think the U.S. Uh, was wildly successful sort of from the 20s to the 60s and through the war period. I think the U.S. attracted an awful lot of European talent uh, and you think of what they did in the United States 
um, to really to build our technology infrastructure. And we truly kind of tapped into the best and the brightest of the world. So I, I think that drove the US economy for a, a period of time. Secondly, then, I think the next wave, when you think of the late 80s and the 90s, uh, and in India, uh, God bless, but they you know, only educated the top 1% of the country. You start with a billion people, and you educate the top 1%, and then only the top 1% of that top 1% had a chance of getting to the US. Uh, and we actually imported a ton of really great software and technical talent. And you look at our infrastructure of software and technology today, and there's certainly some components to that, to that group of people. Um, so we brought in uh, all of these great and smart people, and I was commenting on your premise that uh, in, in your book of 25 years ago, one of the comments you made was that there's reasons why the US should not lead in software because it is labor-intensive, and you normally are going to see those things go to less labor-intensive places. And I said, but the difference in software, unlike manufacturing, and I said, not only is this important in the way we, we, we created our dominance uh, and immigration created, but why, we're going to keep, why we have been able to keep it. And I said, uh, proximity to the customer is really important in software, number one. And number two, uh, your comment about we shouldn't because of, of low-cost labor. Unlike any other, let's say, manufacturing business where we can have the great idea here and we wildly scale it in China or somewhere else, um, a great developer is said to be 10 times more productive than an okay developer. And so it's not so much how much I pay, it's how good is the person that I'm paying in a lot of elements of software. A good software developer is not only going to develop much, much, much faster in their code, but it's going to be so much more concise and so much more clean in terms of bugs and so much more maintainable down the road that it was more we had the best and the brightest all kind of in one place. And secondly, not only was it one place in Silicon Valley or in clusters throughout the United States, but in terms of retaining that, if I can't get in front of the customer, unlike any other manufacturing process, my people and my developers, my product managers are the ones. And the fact that I can go to a trade show and talk to that 100 people and get ideas, the fact that I get those people in front of the customer and they learn more about the industry so that they can go back and code. And so historically, proximity to the customer has been so critically important. And that's one of the things that I think has really allowed the software business to stay here as opposed to germinate here. The good ideas germinate here. And, and I always said, you know, outsourcing to India is no panacea. Uh, even in, you know, the Y2K period, there were things you could do in India, but in terms of what I'll call novel raw development, you really need, you know, we, we built our office. We, we took over a trading floor for uh, uh, an oil and gas trading company. We had 500 people in one room, uh, and that was all of our development team. And we didn't even want a wall between them. And it was the most efficient little Petri dish of development, and this is was part of our competitive advantage in Atlanta. There's having everybody together and with so little barriers that were keeping them from getting really fast decisions as we scaled from 100 to 2,000 people. So, so not only has it been this immigration policy, bright people coming in, all of the classic, yes, we're creative, yes, we have few barriers to entry, we're a big market. But again, you know, the fact that we have so much of our market here, proximity, all of these have come together to make this where you can, can create, where, where it got created, where it has stayed. And I'm not sure that that's going to continue because for the first time ever, we're starting to see, oh, and by the way, for someone to start a company, you kind of have to have seen a company get started. 
So, so much has Silicon Valley had the second, what I'll call the, the second and the third and the fourth generation entrepreneur. They, they worked alongside Hewlett and Packard, and all of a sudden they started another company, and those guys went off and started another company. And, uh, you know, another thing that I kind of said in, the, in my article with the New York Times was starting your company the second time, it's a little like watching a murder mystery movie. You know, you know how it ends. <laughs> the first time you watch it, it's just you're trying to figure out who done it. The second time, you know how it ends, and you're kind of in the nuances, uh, and you're much more thoughtful because you know where it's going to end up, but you already have been through the motions once. Um, so, so we've had that really successful second and third and fourth generation of software entrepreneurs that have come out, but now some of those that have come over and done it are saying, well, wait a minute, I'm going to go back to my home country because now I've got the internet, I've got video conferencing, I've got things that are breaking down this proximity. So I think suddenly we're not in the same position that we were in even five and 10 years ago where you kind of had to be here. You're now seeing companies that are spawning where they say, wait, I'm going to have a small team in the US, I'm going to have a development team in India, and they're going to get more of the advantages of economies of scale, uh, of, of, of low cost labor uh, and gaining economies of scale and the ability to get the advantages of proximity to the customer through video conferencing, things like that. You're going to see a whole new wave of how companies build, I think, in the future. So you think this process of developing scale and having proximity to the customer is now easier to do outside the U.S. than it was 10, 20 years ago? And so we start, should start seeing more internationally based companies that are not necessarily U.S. based, although they'll still have a very strong presence here. Well, and, and this gets back to where will the jobs be? Uh, it might be a company, back to your point, that looks like a U.S. software company. It will have a, a presence somewhere here, and it will have its customer facing, and it will get started here. But again, I'm, I'm saying that there are the, the, the foreign entrepreneur that says, I'm going to get it started here, but my goal is really to get home, uh, and then I'm going to run it from there, and I'm going to have this dual company, and I may have 200 employees in the US and 2,000 in India or something like that. That is a much more viable future for some of this, but it'll be a little invisible to the customer in certain ways that it's not a US company. Let me try to tie in a little bit of Washington policy into this. Now I'm out of my league. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. Politics, one, like we one don't thing touch that's that. Striking to me is that uh, over the past 30 years, um, the U.S. has had a very active international trade policy in a lot of areas, but not in software. You know, we, we, we're far more focused on cars or petroleum or tangible items, agriculture, than, than we are on software, which has probably been a good thing. Well, why, why would you legislate what you're winning? Uh, yeah, you know, the point is, I, you know, that's like saying, well, wait a minute, we produce all the software, let's throw that into the trade negotiation. Well, what's no, the cost no, yeah. unless, unless they're doing it, we're not bringing it up. <laughs> well, what's the cost and the effect? Though? I mean, maybe in part, if we had been aggressive in this area, we would maybe the U.S. industry wouldn't be doing as well as it is. No, I think that it hasn't been part of the policy in terms of just policy of, of are we trying to protect or, or be uh, uh, on the other side of being protected from, is that all the ingredients I said are just so in place and natural that, you know, look, it, Italy builds a lot of boats. Well, the, it's a peninsula, for God's sakes. You know, they've just got certain things that make it really attractive for them to be a leader in that business. And 
the U.S. for all of these reasons of country and creativity and size of market and scalabilities, et cetera. I think it was just a natural process that the U.S. sort of became the leaders in enterprise software, especially enterprise to separate it from gaming and some other stuff. Uh, and so because software is such a critical thing for a company to have, and it's so hard to reproduce because it's so alive and it's, you're only in software, you're only as good as your next revision. You know, historically, I bought a phone company, and you know, I could probably use that phone system for three, four, five years without a lot of upgrade. Uh, if I don't get upgrades in software, usually by the next you know, cycle of tax changes or something else, I'm dead. So you think about how do you throw this into a, into a trade discussion? Is it, I'm going to stop buying the, the world's leading software uh, because I want to disadvantage my own businesses in a way that they can't compete with the rest of the world? Software is such the backbone of a company that, okay, well, the U.S. isn't going to throw it into a policy discussion because, hey, we're winning. It's good for us. Europe wasn't going to throw it in because what, what was the really meaningful threat? We're going to stop buying your software, and we're going to buy our local stuff that's not as good, and we're going to, we're going to make sure that we are globally disadvantaged by having really crappy software on the backbone of our companies. We're going to have no business intelligence, but, boy, we're going to show you guys... <laughs> Well, to some extent, we're seeing that today, aren't we, with, in a couple of areas. One, uh, in Europe and other areas of the world on privacy, on, uh, soft, on Internet searches, and uh, there's at least one interpretation that that's aimed squarely at the United States. Uh, and then there's another area, which is uh, uh, security, privacy, in other countries, which I will not name, but which should be fairly obvious, which tell American companies, essentially, you can't do business here unless you spy on our people. Help us do that. Um, so, I, and I'd say these developments have been largely in the past few years where other countries, not the U.S., but other countries are starting to raise uh, the software industry as a target of, of international trade in a way. Look, I think part of the formation of the European Union was, you know, when, when people thought software was going to swallow the world um, and it was going to be the only business left, uh, as Europe was getting together, I think it was, how, how do we generate the scale so that all of our industries can compete better? But I think software was a real key to that because they recognized the U.S. scale on software was such an advantage. How do we how do we decrease the friction in Europe so that we can have a more homogenous community? Of course, the problem with that is you, you then throw in a single currency and 17 governments and um, still uh, you know, 2,000 years of cultural bias and all of that, and it's probably not quite as successful uh, as they were hoping it would be, and especially in software. And so the U.S. continued to be a leader in software. And you say, well, wait a minute. It's, you know, if you're a European or anywhere in the world, and you say, well, wait a minute, I can't, I can't not buy their software because we need it. Uh, I do know that of any industry there's an imbalance of trade, this is probably it. I think there are absolutely some legitimate differences of opinion of how do we define privacy, what are acceptable terms, what is the definition of, of too much market power. I don't want to use the M word but how do we decentralize and allow there to be a fair environment for other companies to exist without you exerting overt 
market pressures, uh, taking advantage of being de facto standard to, to swallow the world. Uh, and I, but secondly, I think that there's um, the use of some of those things to keep those companies in check and to at least make sure that there's a lot of continuing dialogue with the future of the products, how they're used in those countries, how there's an assurance that the products are appropriately taxed, um, and that they, there is an income generation that if, you know, if you are going to make an awful lot of money in this country uh, by selling software, we need to be part of that economic equation. And I think some of, the, some of those discussions, especially when it comes to the de facto standard, some of those could be the increases in requirements for certain economic benefits to make sure that there's a bit of a fair relationship on the balance of trade. And that certainly has been from the spillover effects from software into, say, retail with Amazon and other, country, other companies that mm -hmm. uh, have, have uh, done very well, let's say, globally. I'm going to open it up for questions. I could go on talking with Alan, but I, I, I know lots of you here have lots of questions. And uh, why don't we open things up briefly? And so I'm not the one asking all the questions of Alan. There's a gentleman here. Here in the U.S., with the increase in regulation and taxes and arbitrariness of the bureaucracy, do you see our competitive advantage declining over time? Um, this question is specific to the software industry, or? Um, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest threat is, um, and, and I don't want to get into a big uh, immigration discussion, but I do think that there is a component of good immigration of what I'll call the best and the brightest. And if we don't continue to not only allow some of the best and the brightest to come into the country. And secondly, as we educate them, let them stay in the country as they come out of our schools. I, I think it's going to be, look, and I'm not, I'm not for what I'll call wide open, but I think that a, a, a smart, rational, that there are people in the world that are, look, you can, you, I had a kid come over to my house the other day, nine years old, and played the piano. I, I cried. I mean, you, you can see that there's talent there. There are kids that are in college that, look, we're, it, the world is fair, but it's not exactly identical. There are people out there that are, I meet them, and they are brilliant. They, they are, I cannot keep up on the engineering skills that people that I meet have, uh, and those are the people that I want to hire and bring into my company. And when you identify some of those globally talented people that you know are going to be, because of their intelligence, economic engines, you want to have them using that economic horsepower in our country. Because uh, if they're not going to do it here, they're going to do it somewhere. And if those people are not doing it here, uh, then it is going to hurt us in terms of competitiveness in the long run. I, mean, I, I, I don't know if there's any way that you can argue some of that. And again, you know, this, this is a different uh, argument than do we open the borders to 20,000 visas or things like that. But I think that when there's really and truly gifted people that are either in the world that want to come here, stay here, or are educated here and want to start their companies here, we should, we should make it easy for them to do that. Alan, do you find that if there's a, a bright young software engineer who really thinks he's got 
some really good ideas. But they're not in the U.S. now. Is their destination, i got to find a way to get to the United States. Is that what's going on in the mind of a, of a 20-year-old software engineer, whether they're in Brazil or China or just anywhere around the world? Or are they sort of saying, no, I'm going to do it here? I think there's as many answers as there are software engineers, because some of them say, I'm going to do it here. And, you know, they become that local, that local entrepreneur who does well for a little while, and probably a U.S. company is going to come in and steamroll them, and they don't even know that that's going to be their ultimate uh, uh, disposition. Because yeah. uh, I, I will tell you, I've steamrolled over a lot of those folks. that They were good, and they were bright, and they didn't make it to the U.S., and they started really nice, successful software companies that became the local favorite. Uh, and, and, you know, the, a lot of times they would sit down with a customer or we would sit down and say, you know, we love our old local vendor. We loved them right up until the day they shut their doors and went bankrupt. But let's sit down and talk about how we put your stuff in now. You know, I don't know that I answered your full question on the rest of the, the, the stuff, by the way, and I apologize for that. But, you know, obviously more legislation is more difficult. It's more friction. I don't think it's going to change the nature of the fact that creative people, I don't think it's at a point where, where we can't start companies. But I do think that it, you know, every added regulation and legislation and with employees and, you know, the, the, the lower thresholds and the more costs, because, uh, you know, these are, these are groups of kids that want to get together. A lot of these great companies start with people that kind of don't care about a lot of that stuff. They want to conserve their money. And one thing that the U.S. has been interesting in is the use of equity in these small startups, that they get spread a little bit more. People feel like owners. And as I say to most of the early employees that I get, you know, I want you to think like an owner, act like an owner, work like an owner, and it's my responsibility that you are an owner. Uh, and I don't think that that's as, as pervasive in other countries. But the key to that then is if we're getting together and we just kind of don't want to worry about all that regulation, we're not worried about our own health care and the plan and the 50 regulations and what's going to happen if I get fired and kind of all those things, all of a sudden you know, somebody has to worry about that. And it does become kind of an over an added overhead to, gee, how do, I, how do I get this thing off the ground? Other questions? Thank you. I'd just like to follow up on this issue of the, v, the particularly, I guess, what is, is the H-1 visas. If I can get your take on the argument that one often hears that, on the one hand, we've got to open up to these very talented people, like you say there, there are, uh, but on the other hand, Others say that, well, it's the, it's the companies that really just want to offer much lower salaries to Indians or others rather than pay the going rate to American-educated uh, engineers. What's your, what's your assessment of the, of the validity of that discussion? Um, the, the challenge here is that I, I think a lot of the things that are publicly discussed about the issue are not the real issue. But at the end of the day, a, a lot of it is just you know, if you've got a, a, a piece of paper that starts white and kind of slowly shades to gray to black, you know, where do you, wanna, where do you want that line to be? I absolutely understand, and I said that there's a, a, a policy issue on how open do you make that? Uh, because, look, we need to absolutely protect U.S. jobs, and, and we want to encourage schools to be able to, to teach our local people how to do this, and we want to... You know, is it is it good policy to slightly advantage your local workforce to get jobs as opposed to wildly open it up, but to a level that you don't cripple your businesses so that they're just uncompetitive? And I think that there is a fair place somewhere along that gradient. Uh, and I don't think it's 
Uh, and the problem is, I think, it, it, you know, there's probably somewhere on that piece of paper that's way over in the white that is what I'm going to call the truly gifted and talented. That's different than I want to decide whether I take 10,000 jobs and move them to India or I, I want to just kind of have an open policy that is not really way at the scale of a meritocracy. It's the student who's just gotten a PhD in something that is truly a national asset and still can't get a visa and kind of gets taken out of the country. So I think that there, you know, unfortunately, I think the area where most uh, reasonable people would agree becomes political. And so suddenly, the 90% of gray comes in and makes a bad decision on what I'll call the 10% of what's a little less gray, and that we can't have a reasonable discussion about these are different issues, that, that, uh, that immigration is not a single issue. It's at least two or three or four or five different issues. And the problem in our political system is I'm just going to staple my passion onto your passion, and I won't pass yours unless you pass mine. And so let's just be completely dysfunctional, and we'll have something where we took all of the issues, we threw them in a hat, someone's going to reach in and grab like a little pile of the issues, throw them out and say, okay, these, these are good ones, and we'll let those be in the next legislation randomly. These are just really crappy ones, and let's get rid of them. So, you know, I think that just becomes the, the unreasonableness of the process. We have lots of questions, so uh, let, let's, we'll work our way from the back forward here. Tony Levanius, thank you very much for your presentation. I'm doing business based here and in Frankfurt, Germany, so I'd like to ask you about the European market. Uh, as a business leader, how is it today for you, for your company, to do business in Europe? Is it more difficult than, let's say, a decade, a decade ago? Does Brussels... <laughs> Uh, put more regulations? Is it easier today than it was 10, 10 years ago, or is it more difficult today? Thank you. So, so my two businesses were so different that I may, I'm going to give you an answer from the window I look out, and somebody else may give you a very different answer from the fact that they look out of a different window. So I don't study this academically. I'm only giving you my perception from, from my experiences. And it's that it probably is more difficult today. Um, we, when we built out Europe, we actually ended up for a long time running almost all of our European operations out of London. And we would actually hire people from each one of the countries and bring them to London uh, because we wanted, a, a, number one, we just wanted a, a critical mass. You know, there was so much learning going on. Uh, and then we would just fly people kind of back into their countries. And then as we developed more scale, we needed local presence. Uh, and so we sidestepped the international, some of the headaches of international. And, and I think even employees uh, have gotten what I'll call smarter uh, in these countries. So, you know, when you sign an employment agreement with them, they kind of start really uh, having a lot of angst if you don't have a local entity because they feel that for them to get kind of what has been granted by God and their country, uh, it's a lot harder for them to collect on that if, you're, if they're not directly employed and you've got a lot to lose and the, the country itself can, can influence a lot of things over you because trying to, trying, to, trying to get out of an entity in Europe is, once again, you know, employees are dependents and, and, and entities are anchors. Uh, and so it's, you've got to be thoughtful in the way you do it. And I think it has gotten 
a little more challenging, uh, both because of the governments and because of the fact that employees have gotten a lot smarter of how to use uh, the rules that have been established in their behalf. Uh, thank you. Um, I have two questions. Um, one I deals. Know, please identify yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. My name is Jeff Krasny. Um, and thank you for, for being here. Uh, the first question deals with the um, digital economy. And I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts with respect to fintech, that is uh, blockchain or Bitcoin. And the second question deals with um, augmented reality, uh, a virtual reality type of format. And I'm just kind of curious as to your thoughts on, is 2016 going to be finally the, the year for augmented reality? Uh, in terms of fintech and of those currencies, I, I don't have a lot of opinion. I've researched it a little bit, and I, you know, uh, it's not really my area of expertise. Uh, augmented reality, on the other hand, is. And uh, even the third company I'm getting involved in right now, um, you know, my background was in mobile device management. You think of the uh, devices, they're really you know, connected to phones. They're fancy phones. A, a device is a device. A thing is a thing. Uh, and, and I do believe that the... Uh, that we really ha are hitting the, the uh, inflection point, if you will, of that technology, both from a gaming and personal use perspective, but also from a surgical and healthcare perspective, from a, a training perspective, from a, you know, when you're up on a, on a, on a wind tunnel or, or a, 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 a wind turbine uh, and you need to do the repairs and you don't have everything uh, all the knowledge you need, and you can throw this on, and it walks you through what the repair looks like. And you've got, you know, a, 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 there's a there's a, uh, a disaster somewhere in the world, and and you now are training people not to be medical specialists, but generic people that can uh, learn very quickly and do things in emergency situations. Because what's the what's the odds of an ophthalmologist running into somebody in a disaster who actually has an eye problem? Uh, it, it's low. But the fact that a good medical technician can go and suddenly get somebody who is a specialist, who's seen what you're seeing and direct you what to do, the opportunities for that technology is phenomenal. And what we are seeing in new ways of training employees, uh, you know, the, the old world of, of textbooks and three, once every three-month training seminars, you know, our company went to weekly snippets of information to our employees because the learning needs to happen so fast and the fact that these things are happening either via tablets or I can get other information real time to people on the job. I think we're coming into a whole new, whole new way that we interact with our world. And it's not only augmented reality, but it's the internet of things and the fact that we are going to become an integrated part of our, uh, of our surroundings. And you think, you know, the, all of this is kind of where where, where the cyber world is touching the physical world in ways that we've never seen before. Thank you very much. My name is Georges Mihaias. Uh, I'm French and I'm involved with UNESCO to disseminate the best practices, including software development and how to handle international cooperation. Coming back to Europe, 
uh, we go through a game changer, digi massive digitalization. At European Union level, they are, they have billions of euro financing based on grants, but as well as 300 and some billions of euro available until 2020 to raise money to finance entrepreneurship. Would you see, from your perspective, any way to help bet, develop better understanding and cooperation between European Union key member countries and U.S. to help better disseminate your best practices, your success in Europe. I would call it a broad dissemination of American entrepreneurship across Europe. Well, let me start with I think that, that I do believe Europe is doing a much better job at entrepreneurship. I think that the, the sort of the new generation of Europeans versus 15, 20 years ago are more entrepreneurial. I think that the societal uh, uh, acceptance of failure. You know, in Silicon Valley, if you haven't failed, you haven't tried. Uh, I think there was a little bit more in Europe that, gee, why would I invest in them? Their last uh, uh, endeavor was a disaster. Uh, and you sort of didn't get, you didn't get your fair three strikes. Kind of if you struck out the first time, it was hard to get to the second and the third. Um, and so I, and, and I think that Europe is driving itself realizing that at least in segments of its economy, it needs to become more of a meritocracy, that it doesn't matter who you were or where you came from. It's, there's, if you start something, there's a, a chance to get started, a willingness not only for the people to take more risk. And by the way, when I, when I use the word risk, entrepreneurs are, are not risk takers. Uh, people have this impression that, that there's, different ki there's different kinds of risk. Uh, people have the impression that an entrepreneur must be willing to spin the dice and uh, or roll, you know, spin the bottle or, or roll the dice and, and take big risks. What you'll find is entrepreneurs are taking very, very calculated risks, generally with their own time and their own money. Uh, so you know, the financial industry is full of risk because they're doing it with opium, other people's money. Entrepreneurship is usually you're investing your time, your energy, a lot of your money, uh, and you are very thoughtful, calculated decisions on what to do next. Most successful entrepreneurs I know are very risk averse, but it means that they're willing to, as I say, 90% of life is showing up. They're willing to show up, they're willing to learn, they're willing to work hard, and they're willing to take a certain amount of personal risk to, to try something and do something. And I think Europe, the, the younger European generation, I am seeing much more of that, and I'm seeing a willingness for the companies to buy interesting technologies that are uh, coming from smaller companies uh, because they're valuable for now, and a realization that software doesn't last forever. So if the company is here for a while and I get great value, and if they scale and become wildly successful, I was an early adopter, and if they don't, you know, there's probably going to be someone who succeeds that, and it's easier to plug in and plug out. It's not, you know, software is no longer, gee, if, I, if, I, if it wasn't SAP and it wasn't a $500 million installation, I've got all these components that fit in really well that are cheap and disposable, and if I want the best of what's here today or something that's local where they're going to work with me, and that's creating a great deal of opportunity. So, look, I, I, I don't think the U.S. Is, uh, is going to be able to maintain its such a de facto standard position, especially when it comes to the, the secondary set of companies that, that are inventing really interesting little niche products. Hershey, I'm a consultant. Uh, how has the growth of the internet affected your operations? 
Well, I mean, the, there's no such thing as, uh, as the Internet in and of itself. It's kind of like saying, uh, you know, or, 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 when's the last time you've seen a company say we're electricity enabled? You know, the answer is that you, you, it's just a natural part of what you do. The Internet is a pervasive underlying fiber of communications at this point. And so you just you wouldn't do business. I mean, uh, you know, everything we, we send back and forth at Manhattan Associates, it's enabled whole new products and supply chain to integrate companies and get information in advance of physical products so that it's processed more efficiently to know inventories and to plan for shortages and, and make things more efficient. And AirWatch, we manage millions and millions of smartphones, and the only way we were going to touch them is through the networks that have been created to be able to configure and secure and to monitor how they're being used and to, you know, the things that the businesses need to get them configured for, for business. So uh, it, it, it is just, you know, it's such an underlying technology that we just wouldn't exist with, none of the businesses would exist the way they look today without it. Let's go over to the side of the room. Walters at Hudson. Um, I just want to ask you, Alan, in the introduction it mentioned you're involved with at least two educational institutions, Potomac School and Georgia Tech, I think I heard. And I wondered, given the need for talent, how you see American education doing in, the, uh, what, uh, in terms of providing the kind of talent or identifying it or preparing it to be uh, part of, uh, of your business or preparing our future, since you've obviously thought about that both as an entrepreneur and as an educator. Well, let me start with, um, I don't think I would be qualified to go to college based on what I'm seeing from some of the young kids that are in college today. I look at the students coming out of, let's say, at Georgia Tech uh, and, and the degree of sophistication and seriousness and, and the direction that they have. And the, and the I mean, I, you know, I feel like I was uh, just really dumb socially, um, career-wise, knowledgeable about, uh, you know, these guys go through internships, they are well prepared, they are taught to be articulate, they go through Socratic methods of education, they go through um, mock uh, real business type scenarios. Um, you know, I went to school and, and I learned my economics class and I learned my chemistry class and I learned my physics class and my real world um, knowledge was, was very immature compared to these, these people. I will say some of the same things about high school. Now, it, you know, Potomac is not the typical high school, so I have to, you know, you have to compare sort of, again, the window we look out of. But, I mean, some of these guys for being high schoolers, you would think they are college graduates. And, you know, I think the downfall a little bit in high school is you've, you do have these kids that are absolutely great at doing their calculus and they're gifted and, um, but, but they can't balance a checkbook to save their lives. If they don't have uh, a lot of direction from their parents, you know, their real-world real skills uh, are declining as their academic skills are improving. And uh, you know, some people would argue this is just the way parents are. Uh, you know, it's, parent, it's bad parenting, quote-unquote. It's parenting. It's not the kids. You know, we're there, and we're supporting them and scaffolding them. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, they, they really struggle with college, and even through college, you know, the, the kidding uh, statement of, gee, am I going to have to move to college to get my kids sort of through it? Uh, and then I think that even in colleges, they struggle with 
um, kids making that transition out of college I into kind of the real world and the real workforce and, um, you know, again, their reward systems. You know, they're used to, you get a trophy just for showing up. We tell kids that everybody's a success. Uh, and, and, you know, we've changed from what I'll call the hard-nosed competition. You know, life is tough. There really is winners and losers in the world. And kids are coming out of college with a little less of that. And where it concerns me a little bit is we've got kids coming out of China and India. Uh, you know, they've hustled since they were three because if they didn't, they didn't eat. And so, you know, when you think of the, the, the tenacity and the grit that some of the people coming out of the rest of the world have, we have so many great advantages of education and um, uh, in the creativity that our educational process instills. But where I think uh, socially we're lacking is, is people having what I'll call the same kind of grit that maybe people did, kids coming out 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's some of it, don't get me wrong, but it's, if you were to ask me where I'm concerned, it's, it gets back to the good ideas are hard and execution's harder and what it takes to be entrepreneurial and start a company. Um, you know, I, I liken it a little bit to, uh, uh, you know, Rocky. I, I love, uh, Bobby Knight had a great expression where he says, every player I ever coached had the will to win. Very few had the will to practice to win. You know, the stuff that it takes to really be successful, everybody wants to start a company and make a billion dollars. Very few people I've hired have the tenacity that they're willing to take five or seven or ten years of their life. They're willing to put almost everything on hold. They're willing to take out their trash. They're willing to drive the ten-year-old car. Um, you know, and, and actually, the, our world has made it a little easier for those people because now you can get a big venture fund round and you can take the $200,000 a year salary and you can sort of, you know, it's a, it's a kinder, gentler world. Uh, and people give up a lot of their equity to, to somewhat have that. But even most VCs will say uh, the only real predictor between a company's success and some other factor is the inverse proportion of the salary that the CEO wants. Hi there, I'm Jesse Blumenthal. I was curious, given your considerable experience in the software industry and also as a patent holder, uh, what you thought of the value of software patents, especially relative to other types of patents. Uh, a double-edged sword. Um, look, you absolutely need patents. Uh, I was the um, um, one of the early beneficiaries of the Lemelson. <laughs> Uh, and I say uh, beneficiaries uh, figuratively. So you, know, you think of the, the patent trolling going on, and I think it's got to be um, much better controls in that process. Um, but it is, it is so hard, it is so hard for I mean, even me in, in the industry to really think through a patent what is really the novel technology? What is defendable and what isn't? So few of them are, um, are such cut and dry. Uh, and and you know, I, I recently uh, had the privilege of going through a patent defense process where I was, or, or, or offense process where, uh, so with Lemelson and with the old symbol scanning, we kind of got dragged into some of those patents back in the 90s and then more recently uh, at VMware 
uh, and with their watch got dragged into uh, some older patents that people were, were applying. And in, and in both instances, um, both got settled sort of very amicably, if you will. But it is, um, it, I, I don't know even know how to answer because it's a very messy process and very, very few people understand. And I'm, I'm blessed to have my brother as my patent attorney. <laughs> so we sit around and talk about this on Thanksgiving dinner about how do we put in patents and how do we, what is it? Uh, and and we, have never, we have never offensively used a patent uh, and we have generally put them in because we just want to be in a good posture defensively if needed. But it's, it's a necessary evil and it's a, um, it's a challenging environment for, for that today. My name is Bill Buck. Uh, I'm with Genesee. You're a clever guy, Alan. I, you're, you've, you've spoken a lot about mobility, but I'm, I'm kind of lost why you haven't spoken about Android or, or Linux or uh, any of those uh, kind of very powerful software issues that have driven the industry for years to billions and billions of dollars, but I'll forego that. There's no reason other than I almost use it a little bit generically. Okay. It's almost kind of like Kleenex. When I talk about mobile and I throw out Apple, it's, it's okay. probably shame on me. No, uh, I'm not we, trying to sharpshoot you. I just, I just can't. You know, it that. just so happens that I carry one, yeah. uh, an iPhone, and therefore it probably is top of mind a little bit. So no disrespect to our good friends at Google and everything great going on in Linux and, yeah. and even our good friends at Windows. And, sure. You know, you know, all seven people that carry a Windows phone. Okay. We, we want to thank. Okay, so let's let so go taking that one step further. You mentioned before the issues be of YouTube's, uh, uh, privacy and security and whatnot in the in, in the post Snowden era, uh, post WikiLeaks. I mean, kind of going back to more of a geopolitical theme here. Um, don't you see with the advent, as particularly as an enterprise guy, of the cloud and the importance of keeping data in a secure place that has lots of ramifications depending on how you use that data to develop the metrics or business intelligence that you want, don't you see that as sort of breaking down the dominance of, of the United States in terms of the future of the industry? I, I don't know that those are the things that are going to drive the breakdown. Um, look, there's, you know, it's very, uh, uh, you're very capable of setting up data centers around the world and, and, and compartmentalizing data. So if I'm Google and, and I want, uh, or if I'm AWS, um, uh, or a soft, better yet, a software company, a, a Microsoft or an Oracle, et cetera, I can keep my customers' data privately in country. I can have slightly different data loss prevention, security, privacy rules that are compartmentalized into those countries. Uh, you know, you might find that it actually kind of redominates the United States or becomes a, something that, that is in the U.S. favor, back to scale uh, and, the, and the complexity that that creates, that generally in the Western world, the U.S. is viewed as a pretty good court system. It's viewed as a generally pretty fair player in some of these areas, not as long as uh, the companies are going to defend the individual countries and their rights. And I'm going to again talk about the Western world. Um, so, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole privacy issue is uh, obviously a lightning rod kind of topic. Um, 
And yet, when you really think about it to the individual, we are giving up all of our privacy every day. I mean, look, you can get more off somebody's, you know, what people post on Instagram and YouTube is, is that's wide open. And I kiddingly call it the uberfication of our society. If I ask all of you to give me a credit card and let me track you 24 hours a day, you know, you're not going to do it. But if I say, hey, I'm going to pick you up and drop you off, I'll tell you where my kids go to school. I'll give you their ages and their favorite fluffy toy. And the minute there is a convenience uh, in anything, I am willing to wildly open up. And so I think that the industry is going to have to there's going to be a real rethinking of a lot of this. I mean, if any of you saw the, the, the Tom Cruise movie where they could predict a crime before it happened, uh, you can darn near do that on Google. You know, Google, Google can probably look at a lot of people's search history and tell you, are they likely to commit a crime? What kind of crime is it going to be? If I combine that with your phone data, you know, this idea that... Uh, um, uh, Apple was tracking where people were. Well, let me tell you, AT&T and Verizon have known everything about where you are and a lot more about you. Uh, you combine that with the insurance companies, and I can tell who sits in front of, in a bar uh, all night. I can tell you what your driving habits are. I can tell you. I, I did a seminar a few years ago to the insurance industry, and, and they wanted to know what's new. And I, and I said, look, you know, the, the really funny thing about what's new is what you're not going to be able to do. The amount of information that you could really glean about somebody and their, their lifestyle and their, their quirks and their flaws that you could use for actuarial purposes and for pricing and risk adjust, uh, adjustment, you, you'll never be able to do it. But the amount of data and big data that's out there and the fact that people are willing to almost in and they don't read a line of the agreement. Right. So, so let, me, let me ask a follow-up question to that. So. If you think of, so you're an Apple guy and you think about Apple and you think that in cash they have more money offshore than, you know, less than what? There's only five or six countries that have more cash reserves than them? So is that an American company anymore or what is that? And is that a country in itself? I mean, are we talking about really a whole new ballgame? This will be the last question that we need to. Let you know, we could answer that about a lot of other companies. You know, Apple is probably, when you think about where the product was created and propensity of number of employees and certain things about them, there's, there's obviously a lot of American to them. But, but look, you can invest in the U.S., what I'll call the U.S. stock market with Procter & Gamble and, uh, you know, the, the, the GM and so many of these companies. You're going to get a tremendous amount of international exposure by uh, uh, investing in the S&P 500. And so now we're starting back to that kind of white to black and, and all the gray in between. And now we can start talking about where, where is any individual company on the line. Uh, but uh, uh, look, Apple is, you know, all companies of that scale and technology is ubiquitous and all of these companies are, are very international in their flavor. Thank God they invented a lot of the product here in the U.S. And with that, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful. Thank you.